Hello, everybody. Welcome to Killer Serials. Tony Jones here. Ryan Parker. Talking about Rectify 304 Girl Jesus. Although Girl Jesus. Who who is Girl Jesus? I know who it is. Do you oh, know who it is? Tawny. It's Tawny. It's Tony. It's yes, sir. It's the person that it's the person that uh, Daniel was his the one time he fell in love. Tony, do you think this is the best episode of hers? Yeah, I mean the, the yes, yeah, the crying that it. I mean, I, it was true. You know, it was it was true. Like weeping breakdown when she does that in the truck. Well, I want to also point out her conversation with the sheriff because yeah. she walks into the lion's den and she doesn't back down. She is as self-assured and confident as she's ever been. I guess that's true, but she doesn't really have anything to tell him. I mean, you know, yes, sir, no, sir. She remembers what he was wearing. I I wanted Sheriff Carl to say, wait, wait, wait. You drove down to Florida to pick up Daniel and his bicycle, but you didn't ask him why he was there? Like, that's the obvious follow-up question that Sheriff Carl doesn't doesn't a- answer. Yeah, that's all well and good, but she also is cutting to the core of what's happening with Daniel too, right? I mean, when she talks about sin and guilt yeah. and innocence yeah. and intention, I couldn't recall a time in a series or a film where uh, guilt or innocence was, you know, outside of, there. I'm sure something like this would have come up in one of the million legal dramas that fill the airwaves, sure. but but not not to the degree that that Tawny talks about the intentionality and harm and the degree to which that wounds someone necessitates punishment or reconfigures the way we think about what sin is you know because we talk about we're just kind of walking you know animals of destruction that we just wreak havoc wherever we go just by being alive. But there's a difference between that and intentionally doing harm. And what she's accusing the state of doing is intentionally harming. Yeah, that's Daniel. And we see that later in the conversation. We see that later between the DA and the sheriff, when the DA and the sheriff were trying to figure out what the hell happened to the 30 other kids that were at the station that night of Hannah's murder and who were never questioned. Right. Well, and also, I mean, that's, it's interesting bookending and it's, I don't want to get too deep into any of this stuff because we're going to have Scott teams, the writer of this episode, join us here in just a minute. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he can shed some light on it, but there's just, it's fascinating because I'll tell you what I want to ask him about is the various sympathies that that we have for different characters. That that's one thing I want to delve into. But I, I think you're right about this um Tawny expressing some pretty sophisticated theological rationale in which she says basically a sin, a premeditated sin is worse than, you know, kind of a crime of passion, I guess you would say. Yeah, or something under the influence, or, and again, I don't think she's yeah. she's talking about Daniel being completely innocent and and kind of like, you know, white as snow, but she also realizes that 
that he is a victim here. Uh, yeah. And that's not something that the sheriff at the moment or anybody else in this town is willing to see other than maybe Amantha and his mother. And oh, buddy, how about Janet and Ted's? We're in separate bedrooms now. <laughs> that's my, uh, don't, don't worry, bro. That's my opening question for Scott teams is going to be, I love it is going to be about that. Yeah. That, I mean, these are just kind of things we're teasing. I think that just stood out to having watched this this week. Yeah. You know, and I think about the therapy session with Teddy and Tawny and we learned a little bit more about Teddy's mother. I do think, and this is something we can probably cover before Scott, but you know, when Ted says to Janet, it's late at night, he's working in the kitchen. He's just kind of keeping his head down. She comes in, she's pissed off. He's really hurt her feelings, obviously. And he's like, look, your son assaulted my son and choked him out. So I don't know what you expect me to do, but I'm going to be defensive of my home and my family if I think someone else is a threat, no matter who that person is, even if it's your kid, even if it's my stepson. And... Man, I you know what? I was in Ted's corner on that uh, on that moment. And little Janet, a little bit. Boy, Janet is just a little bit like head in the sand. Mom refuses to acknowledge how troubling it is for everyone in the family system that, you know, that Daniel's home. Hey, Tony, speaking of, Scott has just joined us. We are thrilled to welcome back writer and uh in this instance director scott teams for our ongoing discussion of episode 304 girl jesus scott welcome back thanks for being back with us yeah thanks for having me back hey scott when did this go from being a show about a guy getting off a death row to being a show about marriage (laughs) that's what i want to know (laughs) i kept watching this episode i mean i've got some very pretty i've got some strong feelings about this episode and the and the characters but but i thought one compelling aspect of it was you're just watching these marriages i don't know about i don't know if devolve is the right word but struggle and not just all they're not all marriages either because we have john and amantha too kind of breaking up but getting together we got ted and janet Now they're going to be sleeping in separate rooms. Very tense there. And yeah. we got the Talbots in. I said this to Ryan in last week's episode because we saw Tawny in therapy. I think it's so hard to get. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been in a lot of therapy, in marriage therapy and individual therapy. So that's yeah. a very familiar uh, setting for me. I think it. I rarely see it done well. We joked, Ryan and I joked about how like probably the most famous therapy scene of recent memory is you know scenes multiple scenes is tony soprano in therapy but that was always kind of played comically a little bit or you know he'd be having daydreams about having sex with his therapist or whatever this is so intense man that marriage therapy set first of all (laughs) i don't know that actress but Wow, she plays like the perfect therapist, and uh, the, the, the Talbot yeah. sitting on the couch, kind of leaning mm. away from each other. So anyway, I just wondered if you could give us some insight into that whole the whole kind of yeah. uh, romantic relationship breakdowns going on all over the place. 
Yeah, I mean, there are, I think when you're writing a show, especially now moving in when you're in the third season of a show, you begin to, there is sometimes this sort of synthesis that happens when you, and thematically, you tend to gravitate writing episodes around themes, you know, and, and for whatever reason, these different relationships were all sort of um, crescendoing in conflict around the same time and you just feel this is the moment all these things begin to hit and clash and sometimes that just happens i think it's a a positive sort of um uh whatever um it's it's when everyone when we're working together when the stories are feeling like they're organic and real and true it's a it just tends to happen and these themes pop up in, in in episodes and you begin to surround or the episode begins to sort of come come together around this idea or this theme, and uh, that's certainly the case in in the middle of the season, and then in this episode particularly, um, where things just really start, and you lean into that, and when you've laid the groundwork of two and a half seasons um, of character work, then you then you have the groundwork to lean into these more nuanced moments. And, you know, I was rewatching this episode uh, just to refresh my memory. And I was just struck again by just the, 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 how rare it is that, um, that a show just takes, and again, I, this is all the credit to Ray McKinnon, but it's, um, and, and our, just our joy to be able to work on it with him, but just that a show takes such, um, has such grace toward its characters, such, such like care about them. And, and everyone is, because everyone in the show is trying to um, be kind, trying to figure out how they can work with other people and be in relationship with other people. And I think that's what strikes me about this is it's very little um, self-preservation. I mean, there's self-preservation, but it's very little stuff, self um, I guess selfish sort of action in this episode, especially even though people are speaking out of hurt. Um, it's still, whether it's Janet is speaking out of a place of deep hurt and Ted is too. And, and obviously Teddy and Tawny and, and everyone's got their own hurts, but everyone's reaching out in whatever way they can to try to bridge the gap, even when it looks like with Ted and Janet, especially that they're trying to, 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 tear the bridge down but it's just i just love that the show is just um people care about people and uh that's a big deal to me and i i think to kind of follow up on this a little bit uh, even though as tony suggested maybe these relationships are devolving or they're fraying a bit people are still trying right they're still trying to connect and to care for each other in the ways that they know how And I think that intentionality comes across even in places where we may not anticipate it, which is with the sheriff, with Sheriff Carl, who I think you suggested the first time you were on with us, mm-hmm. who was going to really grow and evolve as a as a character, as an agent, yeah. as a as a, a person of with agency in this narrative, and it, even a little relationship developing between the DA and the sheriff and trying to understand what happened, mm-hmm. and and then that yeah. bring you kind of bridge those gaps in a way between. Tawny, the sheriff, and then the sheriff and the DA, uh, because he's bringing her in for questioning, uh, which is interesting that that happens right after they're in therapy together. She's been exposed, yet 
she, I told Tony, this felt like one of Adelaide's stronger performances and it, it felt like yeah. the best Tawny episode because I was really moved by her conversation with the sheriff. And I know this is kind of potential deep dive here philosophically and theologically, but I couldn't think of a time <laughs> in a show yeah. where this idea of intentionality was introduced to talk about sin, to talk about guilt, because mm-hmm. we often as, mm-hmm. and you know, perhaps growing up in conservative communities or being in around environments like that, where everybody likes to say all sin is the same, right? One thing is just as bad as another. And that's just not true. Right. And I think Tawny points that out. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, if that's something you all talked about in the room, if that's something you have personally been reflecting on, because I thought that was a, 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 a segment loaded with some kind of theological spiritual implications that we don't often see in, in shows like this. Well, certainly that. And I, I just think that one thing we're all, we were always tr- like, it's, it's, it's easy to lose the thread when you have a character who has um, a, a religious faith at the core of who she is. It's, it's such a tricky balance to try to, work that in to the way it works into her everyday life. But if, if too often, I think when those kind of characters exist in TV, it's whenever they speak, they only speak um, in sort of mm-hmm. yeah. Christianese, you know, and, and that's not the way that I've experienced in my life, certainly. And, um, but, and what I like about, how we were able to build Tawny is that she's able to have conversations. She's a real person in the world. She's not like everything doesn't have to come through this Christianese filter, which I think is often just people's fear of, um, of, of not being good enough or Christian enough or fear of God seeing them talk without <laughs> using Christian language or whatever is the reason people do that. It's, um, it's off putting oftentimes. And, um, and I just, we like that Tawny is a person who is trying to live in the world and is, is her faith informs her. It does not define her in all aspects of her life, but it certainly informs her. And I like when they were able to come back around. She's very honest in the therapy session. And then she goes in with the sheriff and, but she's thought about this with Daniel. She's thought about what this means. She's thought about, she thinks of Daniel in religious and spiritual context all the time because of the suffering he's endured. And, and I think that she's looking at him because of their relationship, the way it started. And it's, um, I just think she looks at him differently. And so when she thinks about him and talks about him, it's through that lens and it's appropriate in that respect. And like she says in the truck with Teddy, she's like a, afterwards she's like i prayed before i went in there you know and it was just like a thing that is reminding us that this is a part of her life and that maybe that maybe that maybe that did something maybe if nothing else it gave her a piece about what she was going to go do because she knows she was going to go speak truthfully and honestly it's a little moment it's a little thing that just reminds us it doesn't have to be she doesn't then let, explain her prayer right. or, or lay hands on Teddy or whatever. It's just like, this is something I did. Now, it, it's reminding Tawny of what that, that how important that is in her own life and how it informs her life. You know, so, I think we talked about this being a timely show to watch in the midst of COVID. And we, and, but it's also suddenly become mm-hmm. timely, or maybe it, it always has been with the rising social justice movement taking place across the country. 
as we watch and record these episodes. And, and just one more thing about that conversation with the sheriff, you know, she talks about, she doesn't forgive, well, she forgives Daniel, but she doesn't let him off the hook, right? She knows that, that he's potentially guilty of something, but the degree of guilt is far less than the degree of guilt that she would place on the state for what it's done to him. And what she doesn't know and what, what you all knew and, and what we as viewers know is that later that conversation between the sheriff and the DA there's what there were like 30 kids there waiting to be interviewed and they quit, Mm -hmm. you know, when they, Mm -hmm. they clearly quote unquote had their kid. And I I just thought that was an interesting thing for somebody like Tawny to say, because you don't often see that. And I think that's part of your point about her being a real person in the world that, that she can name guilt Mm -hmm. of the state when so often in that world, you know, church and state are so aligned that uh, it's rare that you hear criticism one from the other. So I, that was really interesting. Totally. And I like just also what I like about what we're able to do is, is when we can illuminate a side of a character that you don't often see in this case, Tawny's intelligence um, and her thoughtfulness, whether it's Teddy's, you know, Teddy's constantly being revealing new yep. sides of Teddy. And, and he's a character who's sort of going through a gauntlet throughout the series. And so he's constantly under change, but and Tawny is as well, but then you get to see this different sides of her. I think you see a new shade of Ted Sr. later in the episode, and Janet too, to a certain degree, and um, and their own anger. So whenever we're able to reveal the, and that's the beauty of TV, is that you can dole that out in little doses over long periods of time, and then you build over the course of all that a really complex and nuanced, and therefore human character. And that's the beauty of uh, of TV, I think. Well, I I just want to tell you how much I've evolved as a viewer, okay, Scott? Because you like you like a man. Is that how much? Okay, okay. I just there you go. You remember, <laughs> Tony? He called it too. <laughs> and who don't I like anymore? Daniel, uh, right. Daniel, uh, Trey Willis. The show, the, the, the episode oh, Daniel, ended sure, last night. I, you know, the episode came to an end. And I said to my wife, I freaking hate that guy right now. I'm so pissed at <laughs> right Daniel now, because right now. Man, everybody in his, everybody, okay, all these people are in his, his gravitational orbit and they're all, they're all yeah. evolving and changing, uh, tr- struggling through, as we've just been talking about relationships that are under enormous strain, largely because of him. Mm-hmm. And that freaking guy, mm-hmm won't even mm-hmm. like fill out the paperwork won't even an- uh sorry i forgot my cell phone that's like the conversation i have with my mom almost daily mom if you go out she's 77 mm-hmm. if you go out to walk the dog you need to take your phone with you in case you fall oh i forgot it yeah. sorry i'm like oh my gosh tony you do know he was on death row for 18 years yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, I, I, I understand that. And, and I guess here's, here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to ask you about. Cause yeah, I, yeah. I wonder, okay. The, the, the bookends of this episode at the beginning of the episode, we've got the Senator who's paralyzed basically, mm-hmm. you know, from a stroke, he can't, mm-hmm. he can't communicate. He's stuck. And we find out in the, in the course of the episode that he's, you know, he probably railroaded this whole prosecution by, dismissing dozens of potential witnesses once they 
once they right. coerce Daniel into a confession, into a, you know, really a, a drug-induced confession. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the end of the episode, and I think here we have another character who's basically paralyzed. Daniel does not seem to be evolving. He, he, You feel like John Stern wants to grab him by the lapels and shake the hell out of him. And, you know, Dan, John right. John says to Amantha <laughs> at one point, like when they're in the, the diner or the cafe or whatever, he, he says... Uh, well, you know, there's going to be a lot of help for Daniel when he, or maybe Janet says that he, there's going to be help for Daniel when he gets to where he's going. And right. I'm like, I want to scream at the TV. He's not going to take the help. <laughs> he doesn't want the help. <laughs> he's, he's, he continues to make these choices that are so destructive yeah. to himself and those around him. Uh, it epitomized in him doing this beautiful job painting the pool and then destroying it by kicking that you know the can of uh whatever coating it is there at the end um so Mm -hmm. uh, that's my long diatribe about how frustrated i am with daniel and i know i'm guessing that's exactly as the writer and director what you wanted me to experience and i did experience it uh, so I don't know if you, you know, okay. can reflect on you. Okay. I'll, I'll just put yeah. it back on you. You're saying all these characters care about other yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say Daniel doesn't, and he doesn't even care about right. himself. So, like yeah, he, he's stuck. He's just stuck. Fair. That's fair. That is fair. That is very fair. And, you know, he, to Ryan's point, certainly that's a huge, I mean, the defining part of this is that, He's been in a, a box for 20 years and, you know, it's, and so much similarly to how you feel about your mother, I think it's also the same way about, we feel about uh, yeah, teenage that's children. Right. I have too. teenage yep. children and in some ways he is a teenager still. He was a teenager when he went away in terms of his understanding of responsibility and, um, owning it himself and you then you take so he's got this arrested development uh and emotional development and then take the abuse and the suffering of 20 years in a in a cage on top of that and um it's a guy who self-sabotages it's a guy who doesn't he just can't see the bigger picture he's struggling with i mean and so i think just the conflicted nature of daniel we don't the beauty is that we don't always understand what he does. We don't know why he does it. And we as writers don't always understand why he does everything. It's really about feeling our way through. What, what would he do in this moment? Can he really embrace success? Can he do a thing, complete a task and embrace it? Because what would that mean if he completes the task? Will he then have to um, take ownership in a new way in his life? And can, And like, will he... But he has so many questions of his own and his own past and all this. Like he can't reconcile um, who he is. He doesn't know who he is, and so that leads to sort of confounding um, actions, like the kicking over a can of paint. And I never would have thought that I would ever, you know, write or direct an episode that <laughs> where it, we build to this powerful crescendo of a guy kicking up a can of paint mm-hmm. over. But it was. That's where we were, you know, and and that's what it is. And in that moment, it's a small act of defiance. Daniel's pushing against the system, whatever system he thinks is against him right now. 
he may not even know why. He yeah, or, or, or this just and I love the mystery or self-destruction. You know, like yeah. self-destruction. Um, yeah, sure. I think this. I want to come back to this kicking the can thing later, kind of from a from a almost a cinematic standpoint. But when you talk about sure. you know Tony, whether it's self-destructive or whether like it's teenage rebellion, Scott, like you were talking about. You know, it, it, it seems to me that this episode tries Daniel in a way. Daniel's not a multitasker. Because when would you multitask on death row? No, no. And right. so I've got to paint no, a pool. Exactly. And then I maybe I'll turn my form in. Right. But this idea that somehow I need to stop one yep. thing and do another yep. thing, he's probably just yep. still equipped to do that. Totally. Totally. And the paint at the end is also informed by this this day of trying to complete this task, which um, he worked so hard to do. And then she just says, thanks, bye, and closes the door on him. And there's no reward for doing yeah, what you're yeah. supposed to do in this world. And that's what Daniel has to learn, you know. And But I, I was struck rewatching it, just how difficult it was for him. And I'm reminded of my own teenage children and trying to get them to take ownership. This is a conversation I'm having with my wife literally this morning and you know like and it's just how do you what's the best way to parent you want to help them but you don't want to do it for them you know and um this is a constant struggle mm-hmm. of any parent um i think so but that's a great point about multitasking and not having that skill and and um and then that sort of realizing but i think it's the self hate that he can realizes he can't multitask he can't even do a thing <laughs> yeah. on his own that self-hatred is like what leads to the end with the pool and, and just thinking he's a failure in life. And he's also had this crazy interaction with Trey at the house, which is so creepy. my favorite yeah. probably sequence in the show. <laughs> yeah, and awesome. um, and uh, the, the sort of dream that right. becomes real. And, and so that has disturbed him greatly. And he's looked at this kitchen that is in shambles that he's like, is this ever going to actually get finished? And, you know, there's a lot going on in Daniel's world that he feels like he's just, you know, hurt a lot of people and he can't, you know, he feels like a failure. And that's leading to why he sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of the can. And the I, I, I want to ask a, a little bit about that or, or about, I mean, first of all, Trey, I mean, what a character and <laughs> just like every time he walks on camera, I'm like, yes, this is gonna, he's going to make me laugh or, you know, I'm going to want to kick him in the nuts or something. Yeah. It, he's, he's just totally. great, but okay. Just to, I'll, I'll use my, my wife as another entry point. Cause she's kind of been in and out of watching uh, the show with me. She does not like violence. So early in season one, there were some, you know, some of the flashbacks to death row that were really brutal. Mm-hmm. And she's just like tapped out yeah, after yeah. that. But she watched last night, having not watched, you know, maybe five or six episodes or something. And she goes, uh, and th- so George did it, right? <laughs> I'm like, no, we don't know. She's like, oh no, we know. I mean, you must. What did I miss? Like, what did I miss? We know George did it now. I'm like, no, we don't know. My so my question to you is this: as a writer and director, how much did how much did you know? Like, we we obviously don't know where it's going. We don't know how it ends. You do. We don't know how much right, will right. be revealed. Yeah, yeah. So don't mm-hmm. you know? No spoilers. Mm-hmm. But so at this yeah, point, yeah, 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 sure. um, if if you can flash back to where you were when you're writing this episode. How much did you know? 
And how much do you think Ray knew? And how much had Ray mm. revealed what he'd already decided to you and given you to work with? That's that's kind of how I'm trying to understand your mm. mind as you're putting this episode together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Uh, how truthful to be. Uh, <laughs> no, honestly, kidding. Um, uh, no, what, we, we, we approached it. We approached it in lots of ways, sort of like the um, like Sheriff Daggett, really in a, in a lot of ways. As we wrote the show, we we were trying to find where the clues would lead us, you know, and what the truth was. There was an interesting pull that what like we wanted to experience the world as Daniel did in a lot of ways, and to and because oftentimes in situations like this, the truth is pretty muddy. And we wanted to sort of, as we investigated the show, as we investigated the case, um, to sort of see where the clues led us. And, and so we were sort of where, where Daggett and the DA are on their journey. We were not that far ahead of them, really. Um, and uh, I think that's interesting way to approach it. We were, we were, assembling the clues as we, they were revealed to us. And, um, it was an interesting way to do it. And as opposed to saying, this is the black and white version of what happened. Let's then, you know, we were sort of trying to discover it as we went. And, um, so we weren't that far ahead. Um, you know, we, we, we all had ideas of what we thought was the truth and we would approach Ray with our own truth and we would talk through it and we would simply, it was interesting. It was an interesting process over the, this is over the course of three, yeah. four years, you know? And so, um, it evolved. So that's the same. Uh, okay. If, if you were only, yeah. uh, a step or two ahead of, of Sheriff Carl, was Ray a step or two ahead of you or, or when he started with episode one, yeah, did he probably. know, Oh, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to find out that there were actually 30 kids who came into the police station that night. And ten of more questioned, and twenty were released. Right. Yeah, I mean, we had we had some we had we had bits and pieces of of. I think he was, you know, he always had ideas in his head about what the truth was, and and he would not always tell us everything because he wanted us to sort of struggle with it. Because I think that helped the story. Like as we struggled, as the characters struggled with the truth that revealed new ideas and new complexities. And so it's almost like Ray was holding the cards and, and we would poke holes in different theories and ideas that may or may not have been what he was thinking. You know, we would say, well, that didn't work because of this. So that works because of this. So this is a new possibility because of this. And he had his own truth that he was not fully revealing to us. And, and that probably evolved as it did evolve as we, poked holes in it are we you know what i mean so it was interesting because he had his own yeah he definitely he definitely he all he thought about was this show and so he knew what his truth was and then we mm -hmm. sort of evolved mm -hmm. it as a group I'm gonna, i think yeah i, I want to throw in one more little parallel that i saw in the in the episode to earlier episodes before I toss it off to Ryan, he's got some bigger picture questions for you, but, um, I, that, that, mm -hmm. that dreamy, but also real scene mm -hmm. with Trey, you talked about, I feel like in some mm -hmm. ways Trey, and now I can't remember the name of the, uh, 
the prisoner in the next cell who was kind of the devil, the the tempter, you might say, the Satan, Wendell, Wendell, the, Wendell. the Satan, the Satan, the adversary, uh, the in the in the Old Testament yeah. sense of of the adversary. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Trey is is now taken that. Uh, role with Daniel that he's he's Daniel's mm-hmm. adversary and tempter is I don't know if that was you know conscious or whatever but that it's it's a it seems like a powerful yeah. counterpoint to to Daniel trying to make any forward progress. Well, well, Daniel's forward progress is for whatever reason clearly Trey doesn't want that to happen. So uh, whether it's you know in two oh seven when they go down to Florida or in this episode, or even with when Daniel's not around, which is like 303 with when Daggett comes to interview Trey, Trey's got his own uh, motives for what he's, you know, he has his own ass to save. And so he's uh, for whatever reason that we don't know yet, but he clearly seems to be trying to throw Daniel off. You know, he's, he's telling Daniel truths in Florida that also aren't truths. And he's messing with him, coming to his house, you know, and and saying what what would happen. I can't imagine. Basically, he's just he's just screwing with him, you know. I can't imagine what it would be like if they they broke you so deep, you know, and uh, that you think you did it, or that maybe you did do it, you know. That, that all those making Daniel constantly question himself. He's definitely acting that taking that Wendell mantle and uh, and running with it. And part of that was just. At some point, you know, you, 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 we didn't want to go to the back, the flashback well so much that they lose their potency or power. There's a little flashback in this episode, but it's just that idea, you know, Daniel feeling like he's in a prison again, having, because he's having to do this thing, complete this task. And that makes him feel like he's being controlled. And what Daniel doesn't want to be is controlled. And so there's that when he's walking down the hall to deliver the paper um, to his parole officer, he is, he's flashing back to being led in that very similar, you know, way down the prison cell. And uh, he just feels trapped and being trapped on the outside and make when the outside feels like prison, then you suddenly have this, the, the devil, on your shoulder who reappears in this version in the form of Trey. So it's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very astute uh, analysis. And I think Trey plays that role a lot. Yeah. And to, to kind of maybe wrap that part up too, that it, when he's walking to turn his form in and and there's that flashback, it was very effective because it's, it's kind of post-traumatic stress for him. Mm -hmm. We can just see how anything could trigger that. And to me, Really, the gut punch, and one of the one of the biggest um, and more powerful gut punches, really, of the whole series so far, has been Trey's comment to Daniel. You know about what it must feel like to know that you'll never get those years back. And I, yeah. my wife and I have been watching the show together, and and that was the one thing we talked about at length when the episode was over. And it may be worse than that. Because Daniel may never fully own the rest of his life if he is plagued by this trauma or as he continues to be plagued by this trauma. So it just it, it's so effective yeah. to see how that continues to weave through his quote unquote recovery, if that will ever even be possible. And it's also just and it's it's just so great when you 
Like that's a that's really heavy stuff what you're talking about. And then when you can do that, and like you were saying, uh, Tony, it's like when you have Sean Bridgers, who <laughs> no matter he's saying the darkest stuff, and it's just it's funny. It's he's strangely charming always. He's squirrely and interesting because that's just the power of the actor and um sean bridgers is really over the course of the series became really just this this ace up our sleeve and and just such a a a, an important part of the show um even though he was only a supporting minor character he just became because he adds he just it just like throwing a little a little grenade into the mix anytime he walks in, like you said. And so that's a real powerful tool when you can talk about heavy stuff and really be dark, but it's never so off-putting because you've got this this crazy, interesting person saying that stuff. Can you you're kind of touching on this a little bit. Can you talk a bit about this was your first time to direct on the series you've written in you know, kind of co-written on some episodes. And before this, you had directed a couple mm-hmm. of films, mm-hmm. a handful of shorts. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your process, what you took away from the experience, what you were excited to do with that opportunity. Because I, I tell you, this episode to me, and it's not just because we're talking to you, but it, it had a very cinematic quality to it as well. And I and that was a, a, a lot of things yeah, from the thanks. cinematography to the score. I want to know who picked Blue Mountain to mm-hmm. be playing in the background at the bar with Amantha and John, because mm-hmm. I didn't think anybody else knew that band mm-hmm. uh, straight out of Mississippi. <laughs> so uh, that was such a, such a sweet uh, element there too, as a, as a longtime fan of that band. But th- what, what was the whole process like for you in, in directing this episode? Uh, I mean, it was great. I, I enjoyed it. It's, it's always more gratifying when you can direct the thing you write. And um I hadn't had that chance. I mean, I was there. So Ray and I were the ones on set um, over the course of seasons two, three, and four. We were the ones that were there shooting. And um, so I was there a lot, and um, but hadn't hadn't been officially directing until this episode. And I just approached it like I approached my work. Now, it was a learning lesson for sure because um, I do try to approach things cinematically. And... Ultimately, at the end of the day, when you're working on a on a show with uh, on on what we consider basic cable at this point with commercials, we were serving we were we were on Sundance TV and and we had commercial breaks. We had to have a 44 minute episode every time is 44 minutes, and um, and it's a very very tight uh, uh, timeline there. So you had to work it right on the money. And so, um, a lot of my, so it was, it was a a learning curve for me because I would approach things, you know, I tend to, and my have scenes that have a lot of space and breath and I write that way and I shoot that way. And you end up having to cut a lot of stuff or cut them faster when I'm trying to approach something formalistically. Um, and, Ultimately, the learning thing with in TV, you just have to serve the story, serve the characters, and oftentimes you have to keep it simple and then just pick your spots where you're going to let the thing breathe. And you can have moments here and there, but you can't do it all the time. Um, or you're going to compromise the rest of the show, you know, because you're going to have to, if you, if you, 
shoot something in a one a oneer, for example. You can't do that all the time because you have to be able to cut out the the the, the spaces, the gaps, if you need to compress time. So if you're on cable TV where no commercials and no time limits are are, net, are streaming, you can do whatever. But we weren't didn't have that luxury, so. That was one of the one of the you know things I wasn't expecting was to have to um, so I had to let go of a lot of my desire to approach things more cinematically and, and sort of pick and choose and that became more through framing in this episode especially yeah. composition you know you can cut but you have the compositions um, that really I think stand on their own hopefully and they speak and they tell you about like especially when Daniel's back in the house by himself. Um, a lot of off-centered framing. Daniel's having this strange experience. His world is sort of, he's off kilter in his life in general, but, um, you know, having this strange sort of out-of-body experience almost when Trey comes by. And then, um, so that was a big part of it was learning how to pick and choose and, 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 and lean toward composition over sort of longer takes so do traditional coverage but shoot it in an interesting way um and then uh you know i, I chose a lot of the music but then like the blue mountain for example i didn't that was probably ray um ray oversees the final edit so that you direct the show you go in and do your director's cut with the editor and then ray comes in and, and um tweaks and you know polishes and um in my case usually has to cut a lot of crap out because i shoot too much and um so uh which is frustrating for him i'm sure um but like the bomaria song which is playing when trey comes into the house mm -hmm. that strange eerie song that was a choice i put in there and there's some, um, you know i'm a huge music fan it's a big huge part of my life and so i would just feed ray songs throughout the series i would give him music and songs and a lot of those made it into the show i would write whether it was like low for example in the last season was i'm a huge low fan and so great destroyer and then having silver rider those were things i i offered to the show and um just thematically tying things together that band is is one of my favorites and just when i would find a piece of music or an idea that would resonate with me um you know i would i would bring that to him and um there's a lot of that in this episode, especially when the ones I directed, I had more input on the music. So, um, you know, and, and Balmaria, they did, they did a theme song yeah. to rectify. Yeah. That's one of their songs. And so, uh, you know, and so it's, it was, it's, it's fun to use all the different facets. Music's a big part of rectify. And, um, and, uh, it's, it's a joy to be able to have that, that outlet as well. Uh, I think maybe a last comment or question here, unless Tony has anything to add too, but you talked a little bit about trying to pick your spots mm -hmm. and it felt like the ending of the episode might've been one of those. Um, and you, yeah. you briefly referenced mm -hmm. it yeah. before. Uh, and I, I joked, not really joked, but I, I said to Tony that that's such a powerful image of him standing up and the way in which it was framed and the angle from which it was shot of him standing at the pool, mm -hmm. this epoxy mm -hmm. seal is dripping into the pool. Listen, the shades of semen there that it's always talked about sure. in the episode. And I just wonder, was that a, was that an image that you always had in your mind of him standing there? Had, talk about that pick in that spot, I think to, because it's, so, it's certainly another hinge for us as we move into the, you know, the back half of this season. 
Yeah, I mean that that's that final sequence. I'm I'm proud of that. I I really like how it come. It begins with that silhouette of Daniel against the pool, the big bright blue pool, and um and then it ends and then it goes to Ted and Janet and then of course this pretty remarkable moment with Teddy and Tawny and um you know and when they drives her home and and they end up making out and on this sort of a strange emotional thing which is its whole other conversation we could have I'm sure but um about that and um and then it comes back around and Daniel sort of bookends that episode and and honestly shooting the paint was one of the most more difficult things we did that episode um we I mean, the image always saw the white against the blue and the streaks, but how we were going to shoot it and exactly the intensity. And it was an, because it's such a, it's such a strange idea. This like, you're going to walk over here and he's going to kick over this can of paint. And Aiden wrestled with why he was doing it and how he was doing it. And we, and we ended up like, we sat around for like two weeks. We prepped the whole scene and then we sat around for like two hours, me and Aiden and Ray talking about why and 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 it was it took a minute for us all to get on the same page as to why we were doing that it's in the script but then an actor has to take that script and go why am i doing this and because in the script it's very bare bones he walks over he mixes the paint up as if he's going to finish the job and then he doesn't he makes his choice and that was hard for aiden to get to that point because i think he feels what you're feeling like I like I, I don't want this to happen. I don't want him to regress. But he knew ultimately that was the truth of who the character was in that moment. And um it was tough for him. It was tough for us all. And that was a tough shoot. And um but just wanting to kind of help inform the the magnitude of the of the act, therefore shooting at low angle from the base of the stairs leading into the pool. And um and just having that looking up at him, you know, and, and sort of framing him in a distance. And you just really, and so the steps are growing, coming toward frame, coming toward camera, you know, and just creates this sense of, of magnitude, I think, for that moment. And then just really getting tight on those, those white streaks falling down. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful oh, image in a yeah, way. I think, you know? um, and uh, the yeah, I don't know if you know, f- familiar with the work that Mondo does with posters. But uh, yeah, I was like, oh, that image Mm -hmm. there would be the, the, if they ever did a, you know, return to great TV series and did some posters, that's the image of him standing above the pool with the the paint streak. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Tony, Tony, do you have anything else I was going to throw back to you before? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Yeah, Scott, before we go, you and the other writers, I think have been really helpful to us and to our listeners. Um, because you know, we're trying to avoid spoilers, but, um, (laughs) we've also, you know, like even say you, you cautioned me last time we talked, you're like, you, you know, just wait, give Amantha a chance. And, you know, also like, (laughs) Hey, Tawny's really going to evolve. Um, and, and you know, the, the, just the, the evolution in the character and the acting for Teddy is just, uh, I just think a steen sealer Mm -hmm. almost every time. As as Ryan has said, we're yeah. you know kind of looking to bring the plane in for a landing here on season three. Are there things we should 
be on the lookout for as viewers, uh, more subtle takes and stuff that we might watch for as we, as we wrap up season three in the next couple episodes. I just think there's some nice surprises waiting in the last two. And, um, I I really, I'm quite fond of them. And, uh, and I think that's the beautiful thing is that things just continue to change me. I went back and watched to kind of catch up. I, I scanned through the other preceding episodes and I watched Abigail give that monologue in the last episode at the thrifty town conference and uh, where she talks about it. It's just a, and for, I know for me personally, as a writer, when we got to that episode and that's an episode that Coleman Herbert wrote. And, um, and when we got to that, uh, monologue on the page i was like this could be the moment this is the moment that i think in my heart she takes a turn and then when when abigail did it on the day i was just sitting there watching her and it was uh it was very moving to me you know and i I felt like that's that's the beauty of this long form you know is you can like have somebody grow and change and 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 step out on her own which is it's, it's beautiful and so i think there's more of that in store and um you know, I think there's some there's some good stuff for Janet coming down and and um, and Ted Senior and um, especially as we move into season four. So, so I, I, so you know, it's just um, everybody's gonna as gonna uh, have, and, and as the kitchen and, as the kitchen you know. evolves, so the characters evolve. Yeah. That's I'm glad true. you brought up that's, the man that came out yeah, real. That's a good I'm glad answer, you brought right. up. I'm glad you brought up Amantha's uh, mm-hmm. monologue because we talked about that at length, and just the choice to situate that and set it where it was was genius. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. It was. I mean, it just. It was. Sometimes it just works out, and you realize you're you're at a moment because we were waiting for like. The whole time we're like talking through all these seasons, like when is she going to tell her story? When is she going to tell her story? And we never, was it with John? Was it with whoever? And we didn't know, we never could figure out. And then it just was there. It was right there. And uh, it showed up in front of us and we go, this is it. And, and Coleman wrote this great, Coleman and Ray wrote this great, you know, speech. And, and uh, it was, well, it was, we, it was we, great. So yeah. We talked about out. this the last time you were here. And I think we talked about it with Kate as well. Um, it's one of the brilliant aspects of Rectify, I think. And, and it happened again in this episode with Teddy in the therapy office. We suddenly start to hear mm-hmm. Teddy's backstory. Like, that is a slow burn to wait till episode yeah. 304 <laughs> for it to find out, you know, when Teddy's mom left him, that she was an yeah. addict, that yeah. uh, Janet mm-hmm. stepped into his life, and now she's you know, kind of stepped away again. It, it's, it's a long time yeah. to wait to find out what it drives this guy. And now we're finding out what drives him. So it's, it's really, yeah. it's great. I, I hope there's some more. I want, I wanted to also answer one of your burning questions, which I've heard you so, guys talk about, um, which is the parentage yeah. of Jared. And yeah. um, so <laughs> Jared is the child of Ted Senior and Jan. Ah, so there you go, Tony. Um, there you go. So he's Daniel's. So he's Daniel's half brother, and he's uh, 
and so T- Teddy is Daniel's stepbrother. Jared is Daniel's half brother. So basically, Dang. Daniel goes. Daniel gets arrested. Goes to prison. Soon after that, the stress of all of that, what it did to the town, and and Teddy sort of explains a little bit of this in two hundred two, but the stress of that and what it did to the town. Uh, Daniel's father, Lester, uh, he had a heart attack, dies, and not that long after Daniel goes to prison. And um, and so Janet uh, knew Ted Sr. steps and, right in. Uh, they became, and, 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 and steps right and in, buddy. knocks Janet and, up um, pretty quick because, I mean, right, Daniel's <laughs> quick, in prison, yeah. what, 18 and a half years, and Jared's, well, I guess he's just getting his driver's yeah. license, so he's 16. 15, 16? Yeah, yeah. He was 15. He's 15 he when looks, He starts, looks yeah. a little older, Scott, um, than 15. <laughs> well, I got a 15-year-old <laughs> kid. I'm like, Jared's a man. <laughs> but anyways, that's the great Oh, good. Thanks for... Uh, thanks. I've been... Well, it, it kind of explains that Jared's kind of a, a got a foot in both camps, as it were, in those two... Fam- in, the, in the loyalties of the families. You know, yeah, for sure, and that's why Teddy has a conversation with him like different two different times, and he's like, <clears throat> "Well, that I think it's two oh eight when they're having beers in the back, and he's like, "You're not like Daniel," and he's like, "I know," and then oh, later yeah. on in three oh two maybe he's like, "You're not like me either, and that's a good thing so those that gotcha. those bookends because he's one yeah. parent each, right, and that's sort of the beauty of it. And it's like, which way is Jared going to go? Is he a Holden or is he a Talbot? Right. Which is more, which force is in him more? And that's sort of the, the tug of war for Jared's soul throughout the course of Love the it. series. Um, a, a minor, a minor subplot for sure, but it's still part of sort of what we're, oh, what we're going after. And that's why he's sort of investigating Bobby yeah, Dean and yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff. He's just he's trying to figure out who he is and and who is in him and is. You know, and all that stuff. So. You should come on every every episode of our go. podcast, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's deep thoughts, deep thoughts, learning questions. <laughs> hey, man, we are so appreciative, and and I want to we, we've thanked you privately, Absolutely. but also want to thank you publicly here that yeah. for helping us land, uh, you know, other people on the show, writers and yeah. actors, and um, and that sure. that's just been what a treat, mm-hmm. what a treat. So hope. Hope you can swing back by the pod here um, sometime in season four. Uh, we're loving it. Yeah, so. let's do it. Four oh five. That's right. It's a right. date. It's that, a date. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Right. Really appreciate cool. it. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. All right. See you later. <laughs>